Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, David. And uh, it's been a little bit longer than a week since our last episode. And uh, that's because I've decided to um, quit my current job at Booking and uh, pursue something different. So my last couple of weeks have been all about resumes, portfolios, and interviews. And that's the reason why we're doing a podcast on this topic. The show consists of two parts. In our first part, I have a discussion with uh, Tom Aluljure, James Butler, and new to the show, Jen Boyle, who is a recruiter at Beat, previously at Booking.com. And we talk all about what do hiring managers and recruiters want to see in a resume and portfolio, how to let your personality shine through without coming over as cocky, and what does a good portfolio look like? What's good formatting? And finally, we talk about the differences between applying as a junior and applying as a senior and what kind of questions to ask in an interview. Our second part, I talk with Andre Herazemchuk and we talk about how he would hire people at his own design studio and how that was different when he would hire people for big companies like Twitter and Yahoo and Adobe where he worked. And finally, I asked him, how does hiring at a director or VP level look like? So that's the topic for today's show. I hope you enjoy it. James, what do you think are do's and don'ts of a resume? What, what should be in there and what shouldn't? So for me, I definitely want to see a little bit of an introduction, nothing too long, but something that just gives me a little bit of a summary, a little bit of an about me type thing, so I can get a, a bit of a picture of who this person is. I want to see, obviously, the work history, just so I know and I can match up the experience that they have with the position that I'm hiring for. Beyond that, there's not too many other things that I would say that I really have to see within that. It's helpful to know what the education was, so you can also see when they maybe finished with that. But I know a lot of designers are also self-taught, so if that's the case, then I maybe I'd want to see something around that. And I think another thing I like to see is what they've also done or worked on outside of that formal work history. So if they've written articles or if they've done talks or created side products or something like this, something that then shows me a little bit about who they are as a person. Yeah. There's do's and don'ts that, that I think one of the do's is just to give me an idea of who you are and where you're at. And that needs to be, I think, very, it needs to be very humbly stated. I don't like cockiness when I look at resumes. I don't like boasting or bragging, even if it's actually true. I do like things that are factual. So one of the thing, one of the big don'ts for me is people who go in, which you see all the time, even among good designers, I've seen it. I have a real passion for, I'm very passionate about, look, man, honestly, I don't care if you're passionate about it, because if you're passionate about it, it would be reflected in your work. So tell me about your work. Tell me about your, the things you've actually done uh, that are tangible. And then I'm more interested because if you have a passion for psychology, you can show me how that reflected in your work. Yeah. And how do you prevent then from, from something to become super neutral? Because I think if you, if someone would follow it by the, follow your advice and remove all things that they think might come over as cocky or arrogant, then you could end up with a bullet point list of this is what I did and this is the companies that I worked for. Yeah, when you're talking about, at least in my experience, and actually James has more than me in this field, so give me your opinion on it, James, but 
at, at, when you talk about a resume, you're talking about early stage screening. And at that early stage, it really comes down to facts. We have a, a role that needs to be filled. That role has certain requirements and the business has certain requirements. And we're looking for more or less check boxes to move you onto the next stage where we can actually get a feeling for who you are. So I don't mind the idea that it's neutral. And, and it also ties into the idea that maybe if you display too much arrogance or overconfidence, it may be a bad thing as well because you're actually moving away from the neutrality and into an area where you shouldn't be at that stage. Yeah, I think just to add to that point, maybe that because it's that kind of early stage and you have an idea of what you're looking for, then it can be a good thing to try and tailor that resume a little bit to the job that you're applying for so that you can tell them, hey, these are the skills that I have that match up in a way that I think that you're looking for. And that also, to me, tells a bit of a story on have they done their research on the company? Uh, are they really interested in this position? So, yeah, I think it just goes in addition to, to what Tama was saying. I think it's yeah. tricky to balance what comes across as cocky versus factual. And I think that's potentially a, a personal response as well. Yeah. It, it is in the subtleties, I think, James. And I, I agree with what you just said, but it's in the subtleties. So, for example... I created the, this product that changed something about the business versus I contributed to because God knows that you don't create shit on your own. If you do, that's probably not a good sign. And, and it's those, those sort of subtleties, right? I think I read a design manager on Twitter, say, I think past week, where he was saying, oh God, I find it really hard to really understand what all you guys have been doing on these projects. And I think that's super important to like make very very clear like what you've been doing because as you were saying you're not working you're not doing things on your own unless you're uh, freelancing on your own especially when I mean, you're working at a big company it's a collaboration effort and it's really easy to to mention oh this great project and it did this and this but fail to mention what your contribution to the project was and i, I think that links into the portfolio aspect as well like definitely talk about your role and the role that you played in whatever you were creating when yeah. you're talking about that in your portfolio. Before we move on to portfolios, one thing in resumes that we haven't uh, talked about, and I got a question actually from a, a guy on LinkedIn um, who asked me if he should follow these online courses and uh, get certificates and if it would help him in his career. So how much on a portfolio, specifically for designers, are you looking at education, certificates, and achievements? Not at all. Really? I th the only time... Personally, I've looked at that is when I've seen people in their resumes embellish a little bit the roles that they did in their work history. And then I'm looking to see when did this person go to school and when did they leave? So in this case, like someone that's putting that they're uh, a senior designer or a head of something and they're two years outside of education. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be super rare that would happen unless they did that education late and they had a whole bunch of other work history before that. So I would say like 99% of the time, the education stuff doesn't, doesn't matter within the, yeah, I, I, you agree, Tom, I fully agree. I learned very early on in life when I went to university, I, I went, I actually studied law to begin with. I didn't finish it, but I did start, did several years of it. And I assumed going into it that I'd be work uh, studying and, and eventually working with really smart people. And then I very quickly found out that what they studied had nothing to do with how smart they were. It really didn't. A lot of them just, yeah, anyway. And it, I still feel the same even within our field. So what you've studied 
uh, does not mean that you're smart. I want smart people, I want people who can think for themselves and whose thinking shows in their work. And that has nothing to do with your education quite often. One of my favorite hirings, I still work with the person and she, I didn't know, not being Dutch especially, she went to the, the best design school in the country. And I had literally no idea. I found out about a year after I worked with her. And of course, she's a wonderful, incredible hire, but had nothing to do with her schooling, everything to do with her. Yeah. yeah. Is it safe to say then that resumes in particular, as you mentioned, are just like ticking the boxes as a reviewer, right? Ticking the boxes, make sure it all adds up, that it, there is no like weird, as James mentioned, head of design one year after college. Uh, and if you're looking for like a, a junior designer, what are the things that you are, that you're looking at? Because this person probably doesn't have a lot of experience. Yeah. For me, that's a lot harder. Junior is a lot harder than a, a more senior person. You can really look at the experience uh, and the things that they've done. With a junior, I'm, I'm really going a lot on feeling. And, and I'm, I'm curious as to the way they present themselves, the way they communicate in their curriculum. And little things. Okay, so th this hire that I was just talking about, she came straight out of university to work with us. So as junior as they come, really fresh and no experience. And in assessing her, it was really about the level of humility that she showed and the level of passion that she could convey in her curriculum, but especially in the interview. And there's not a lot to go on. So you have to go by thinking. So the, I think for me, the first stage, the resume was very much around those subtleties and the communication and the, her ability to actually format her resume and present it. But I can't judge too harshly. I think it's really, it's a low barrier to be able to get a junior and have a chat to them. So I'm not judging too harshly on the resume. But I am more interested when I get to the interview stage in the way that they think. I'll give you an example with her. All she had to present to me was a single design that she'd done and it was a visual design. That's all she had. She had no web stuff, no app stuff, just a single piece of visual design. But when I sat down with her and we started going through it and I started asking the details about the details and the design. So why is this uh, border here dotted? No, it was dashed. Why is this border here dashed instead of a solid line, for example? And she could give me a reason. Why'd you leave this much space between that and that? And she'd give me a reason. And then when I reached the point that she couldn't give me an explanation for something, which is you know, not uncommon, you didn't think about every single detail sometimes, her response was not one of arrogance or trying to make shit up. Her response was, oh, actually, I, I don't know. I didn't think of that one. And then that, yeah. that to me displayed a great humility. Uh, yeah. So in a junior, that's what I'm looking for, the ability to think, the ability to explain things, and a humility when you can't do that. Okay. Cool. I see we have Jennifer joining our call. Welcome to the show. Could you introduce yourself really quickly to our listeners so they know who you are and who they're listening to? Yes. Yeah. So my name is Jen Boyle. I actually also have worked at, at booking.com. I was there for four years working in the tech and product recruitment area. So mostly recruiting for product managers, data scientists, and design, and spent a year recently uh, in Tel Aviv. So working just specifically in that market for booking.com. I'm now currently working at Beat, which is an urban mobility company. And yes, uh, hiring for a variety of different roles there, design and product mostly. I, I don't want to jump in too early, but one of the big questions I always have is how do, how do people who aren't designers assess designers? So how do you, how can you spot a good designer if you yourself aren't one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for the most part, to be honest, recruiters aren't looking at the, the visual design aspect. We're really focusing on 
motivation, the work experience, are they just hitting like the criteria that the hiring manager or the team has laid up for us? Like three years of experience on mobile, the size of the companies that they've worked on, the type of projects, have they worked in agile teams? Uh, and then of course the soft skills. So these are the things that we're really kind of screening for and looking for like, you know, a booking, did someone know how to do HTML and CSS? So once they pass this criteria, then it's up to uh, the next step of the process for the team then to decide whether or not like their portfolio looks good. We have to see the portfolio. It has to be there. Like I said, if it has more information than for us as recruiters, it just gives more weight to the profile. But this is really what we're focused on, the motivation, general craft and skill, and the, the soft skills of communication. How are they bringing up their ideas, experience? I got a question from someone on uh, LinkedIn before, and they were asking, how much are you looking at education certificates and achievements in, in a resume? Yeah, I think different for different roles and different for different companies. Some companies are hard and fast that you have to have at least a design degree from a good design school. But again, I worked in a past at Booking and here where I'm at Beat, where that was really less important. It was really the, the experience that you had and how you approach design. So if some you are self-taught, you do a lot of online courses, that's totally fine. I think definitely if you're looking to hit some of the larger tech companies, like moving into that just overall helps your portfolio. It helps your, your profile to get into those. So I'd say it depends on the company to see what they're looking for. But there are definitely lots of companies out there that aren't looking uh, for this kind of education. So I'm, I'm surprised to hear that in your experience, certain companies actually do look at that because I always mm -hmm. see it. I always see it in the job ads. They always say three year, you know, three degree or something, the minimum bachelor. I have never literally ever in my 15th year now been asked about my education, even if the mm -hmm. job specifies it, it's never, ever come up. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd really just wonder how, like, why do they even put it in there? Yeah, it's true. It's something that's, again, recruiters aren't always making the job descriptions or speaking with the hiring managers or the leads. And they always, I don't know if it's a standard company, they want it there as another kind of, I don't know, barrier or something to jump over. But if you ask even them what is important in terms of the must-haves in that list, you're right. Education is always at the very bottom. So it's there, but it's less important for sure. So it does make sense that oftentimes it should be removed. I think it's just, yeah, another hurdle for some people to get over. Yeah, I, I think the only time I've heard of this being somewhat relevant is if there's potentially a sponsorship or a visa application involved where it's more of a checkbox for that process mm -hmm. than for the company themselves. Cool. When we jump into portfolios, we, of course, a little bit talked about explaining the cases and explaining the work you've done on a project rather than just uh, putting up nice pictures and say, this is the end product and, and have fun with it. Ahmad, can you briefly explain what are the things that you're looking for in a portfolio? Storytelling. Start, beginning and end. I want good storytelling. Presentation is nice, but I understand some people don't have time, especially if they're more senior or very busy, which is a good thing. They don't have time to make something incredibly beautiful, but you always have time for good storytelling. The content is important and the content should be good storytelling. Again, agreed with Tom on this. I, probably both of you know, I'm a big believer in storytelling. And I think having a good sort of before and after and what was your kind of impact on the work that you created. And again, like talking about your role within that, because we know that it's not only going to be you that's worked on that. So how did that fit in and how can you work that into the, the story that you're trying to communicate? But I think with the storytelling aspect, it still also needs to be factual. 
Of course, I have to agree as well. Just the overview, again, it just adds like context to what's already on your resume. It's to really show me that what you've listed there in terms of the experience that you had and the skills is backed up now by a little bit more. And so it just really then rounds out your whole profile. I have a question for you, Jen. Mm-hmm. What's your reaction if someone doesn't have a portfolio? There's a famous tweet that, well, I don't know it's famous, but I've known many people who have referenced it by Jared Spool. And he said, the best designers don't have portfolios. They're too busy. So what's your response if you come to someone like me or David or James with you know quite a bit of experience? And clearly we have experience and it's probably indisputable. Uh, but we say, look, I don't have a portfolio. What happens next? I definitely think if, if you're someone who's been in the field for a long time, you're already at the point where you're a lead designer or design manager, principal designer, then these types of things do become less important. So it is, I think the portfolio really comes into play a lot for junior graduate core positions. So for those, I think 100% of the time, you really do need a portfolio. You need a little bit of hustle. You need to show your work there. And then, yeah, once you get it to more senior role, maybe it's because you're also influencing more people, right? You're mentoring more people. Maybe you're doing less hands-on design work anyway. So really what a recruiter wants to hear from you anyways is what have you done in terms of helping growing the organization, mentoring other people? How have you helped influence the design system within the organization? Like bigger projects anyways that of course, are just helping the overall design vision of the company rather than the hands-on design work. So I could see like in more senior positions where this would be definitely the case, or you've been working in companies where you literally cannot share kind of the work that you're doing. So that would be how I would approach those situations. So it wouldn't be a blocker though, is what you're saying. I definitely wouldn't be a blocker for more senior roles. I definitely think it would be a blocker for more junior core roles, for sure. Like even just the hiring managers or the team often want to see the portfolio as well. It's not just the recruiter. I kind of disagree with Jared's tweet about this as well in some ways. And I think there's two parts to that. And I think if you're being headhunted, for example, for a position, then maybe, yeah, you shouldn't need a portfolio because they're already looking for you for something and they're trying to bring you in. And oftentimes when I've seen people need portfolios in that situation is to try and fit a company process after the fact that they've got to get them through so many steps. But if you're at that level and you're actively applying for roles, then you should probably have a portfolio of stuff. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be completely visual work. And I agree with Jen again on this, that some of that can be more about how you led a team or how you influenced something within a company. And you can still talk that through in a portfolio case study style format. Yeah, I, I don't completely agree with Jared on that one, that people are too busy. It's, mm-hmm. it's too busy is a, a bit of a bullshit response for many things. Basically, there's the priorities are uh, different, right? Yeah. You're, uh, you don't want to invest time in a portfolio. I think... My conclusion of this would be that portfolios don't necessarily have to be visual. So they can be, they can be a story as well. We talked a little bit about, about soft skills, that they're really important, and personality. Uh, Jennifer, in the beginning of the podcast, Thomas said that in a resume, he's looking for red flags would be that if people sound arrogant and, and cocky about what they've done, how do you assess soft skills and personality? 
in, in a portfolio? Yeah, maybe I haven't seen so much in portfolio, but sometimes when you get resumes and someone has three, four, maybe even five years experience and they're using words like expert in something, like I've also been doing something for five years and I don't consider myself an expert in anything. So I think it is going back to just being humble, just being very just straightforward with your experience and really just focusing on like the work that you've been doing rather than trying to use all these adjectives to sell yourself. That can come across sometimes, I think, in the wrong kind of way uh, to recruiters. So I think that's really where you have to be careful. Just reflect the work that you're doing, you know, that you've been working with teams, like that you've collaborated with other people to show us that you actually work with other people. You're not taking credit for all these big projects. If you're just mentioning these projects and it sounds like you did the whole thing end to end, like that's not a, you want someone to be mentioning working with their engineers, working with products, with QA. So I think these are the things that we're really looking for to see the soft skills are extremely difficult to assess on a resume almost impossible in my opinion unless again they go to towards arrogance or something then they probably don't have any but certainly in person for me it a lot of it comes down to feeling and i think that's okay i actually don't have a problem with that i don't care that if i interview with someone and maybe they don't like me or they don't think i'm a good fit i don't take that personally it's not a problem that's how cultures are built and I think that's just what it comes down to in the end. Okay, you've checked all those boxes that we keep talking about, and we're at a point, it's just a question of whether or not we like you. And a lot of that is intuitive. And again, I think that's okay, because if you don't like this person, doesn't matter how many boxes they check, it's probably not going to be a good thing for your culture. Yeah, but would you say then, that because it's really hard to assess, that you have to give a person the benefit of the doubt and bring them in for a culture interview to really assess if his personality and soft skills match up with the company's culture. So I'm interested in Jen's view on this one, especially my personal belief, and I do hold this belief quite strongly is that a cultural interview should come first. No, because that's really what we're also assessing in our first uh, recruitment phone screen. It's the soft skills and really the cultural fit within, within the company. Like we know our values, we know our team uh, of designers and, and the hiring people and what they're looking for and who they are as people as well. So yeah, there are certain things that you can pick up with initially. And sometimes we have bias as recruiters as well. So somebody might twist us in the wrong kind of way. And we have to be uh, just making that note for the interviewers being like, okay, can you check it on this a little bit more? We're not sure if this person's completely humble just by a couple of things that they said because we might also be wrong just to add i think for people that are potentially on the other side of that and maybe they're just starting to get into a position where they're hiring other people and looking for candidates just to make friends with the recruiters in the company if there's a few of you that are in that pipeline then it's good to get to know each other so you can also talk about the role and what you're looking for have that conversation also afterwards so then you can see why was this person a fit or why wasn't this person a fit and how can we look for that in the next person that we speak to as well or in the portfolio or the resume. So really getting to know those people is a good thing to do when you get to that stage as well. The, I yeah. think I, I, before I started in technology, I used to, for a very short time, worked uh, in insurance in Australia, worked for an insurance company. And they had an extraordinarily strong culture and it was designed that way. And they had... Uh, at the time, it wasn't cliche. It was still a fairly new line of thinking. They had five core values, which they truly believed and they truly built into every part of their business. And then the part of their interview process and their assessment process as well was to search for those five core values. 
and they looked at it in your behaviors, they did behavioral interviewing, they looked at it in you know the way that you answered things, they looked at it in for it in quantitative ways as well. So if you gave specific examples of things, they would want to see how that reflected those values. And they actually it was a very interesting way of being able to really almost quantify whether this person is a cultural fit or not. And I always found that approach interesting. So it went beyond feeling and it was actually, they went back to checkboxes, but it was, it was subjective checkboxes. Yes, this person um, has a sense of urgency, for example, in their work and it reflected in this answer and in the way that they, they did something during the process. What would be questions that you would advise people to ask to the recruiter or the, the other people involved in the interview? It, it, it's a very bold question to ask, so do it delicately, but I, I like to really ask people what the areas for development within the business are. Where could your culture be better or stronger? What are some of the things that are perhaps, you know, your company could be doing better with its staff and stuff? Again, ask it very delicately. Otherwise, you could upset some people. But ideally, the interviewer would have actually told you that stuff. We do every time. And I'm really brutally honest with people. I say, look, man, this is the good stuff. And I'm honest about it. And this is the bad stuff. Um, so if you come in, you got to know that X, Y, and Z is probably not going to um, be perfect. And I'm really honest with people because it's super important. And they you know, almost always appreciate that. And occasionally it does cost you a potential hire, but that's, that to me is much cheaper than hiring somebody who's not going to be happy. But to me, yeah. it's an important question. If, there, if the interviewer hasn't told you what the things in the business that are a little bit broken are, then you should try and find out. Yeah, I think it is a really good question. <laughs> um, and I think it definitely would ca catch a recruiter off guard. And so you would be able maybe to get something uh, out of them. I definitely know it, in the past I've been asked about maybe feedback and things people have been able to find online at Glassdoor. And then tell me about this situation that's happening within your company. And it always is just not something that you're always prepared for. So I think you would get maybe an authentic answer out of the recruiter. And it also... Sometimes recruiters can be in sales mode, thinking about hires, but it really puts them back in a, okay, we're all people. And if this person's really going to join us, they really care, then maybe really give them a good picture on what's going well, what's not going so well to make sure that it's a good fit for them. Sorry, Jen, how would you feel if, if somebody in an interview actually said that? Say, hey, I was on Glassdoor and I read that your CEO is a bit of a dick and he gets involved <laughs> in, you know, in everything. Um, that's how something that's happened. Yeah. Okay. How did you, yeah. like, what was your response to it? How did you feel? Yeah, it was a question around like leadership. Okay, so on Glassdoor, it's saying the leadership is there. And it's, yeah, I think that there are some problems here with leadership, right? We're a company, we've grown very quickly. And this is one of the challenges. So it's obviously we have 3000 people working in the company. So it's not all bad. There's some good places, but it's not perfect. This is what it is. And I can't even guarantee sometimes where you're going to go, where you're going to land or who you're going to work with. But with that, there's also all these other positive things and there's a lot of opportunity to move. So if you get stuck, but it is really difficult because a person does have to take then a chance, a risk that they might end up around some of these people who are obviously within the company. But does, does it leave you with a, a perhaps positive impression of the person that they did that research and they asked the question? Yeah, just as a personal, I'm not sure if everyone uh, in recruitment always thinks, but I definitely do. I think that this means this person is really considering what they know, what's important for them. Maybe they've had bad experiences in the past. They've learned from it. So uh, to me, it's a good sign. I like it. It shows me how people think. Mm -hmm. And then if they're willing to take on some of those challenges or if they think that they have the skills to come in and potentially turn that around a little bit, mm -hmm. depending on the level you're hiring for here, obviously. Mm -hmm. You can get some great people as well from 
people that are willing to ask that type of question up front and then still continue. So I want to cycle back a little bit to to portfolios because I think what I've heard from people is that they all say, oh, it takes so much time to to create a portfolio and how do I maintain it? Because when I'm at my job, I don't want to revisit my portfolio every month and update it with all the projects that I'm doing, especially because most of those projects are still ongoing. You can share these things. James, what would be like practical tips on um, how to format your portfolio and to make it good, but don't spend too much time on it? I think anyway, it's something that you're going to have to invest time in. So probably you should just try and put that thought to the back of your head and maybe you're going to have those thoughts at different stages. So if you've just joined a company, having a up-to-date portfolio, you've probably got it and you're not going to revisit it anytime soon. But I think the best way is to, to continuously add to that or create your, your own little pool of case studies. So when you're working on a project within a company, maybe it comes to an end that's a good time to take stock and look back at what you've done throughout that period, maybe get some of the assets together that you worked on and format a bit of a case study. And I think that's a good personal process to do anyway, because you could also then share those learnings with people within the same company or externally. You could create an article out of this. You could create a design talk out of this. So the time thing, we've spoken about it before and the too busy comment from previous it's something that you're going to need at some point. Yeah. So trying to stay on top of it is always the most effective way. Unfortunately for most people, and I've also been in that situation myself, you let that slip sometimes and then to loop back around to it and work on it again becomes a much huger task. I think just trying to, you don't have to be updating it every month or whatever, but if you're working on a project, definitely take stock of when you think like a good point might be to look back at what you've done throughout that time period and can you create a case study from that yeah. and to answer the other part of your question in terms of it was around formatting a portfolio yeah. right? definitely have at least two strong case studies within there that you can talk about within detail if you need to oftentimes i'll find you'll only really need to talk about one of them in detail but if you can have two that's great and then maybe have a pool of two or three others that are a little bit smaller that you can pull in and talk about and, and all that sort of stuff. And one of the, the best portfolios that I've seen someone present came back to the storytelling thing from before. So they had a little bit of an introduction about themselves, about who they were as a person, like their family, what they liked to do outside of design, because we all have lives outside of that too. And then they really started jumping into, okay, this is case study number one, this is case study number two. Here's a few other things that I've done if you want to chat about those. But yeah, it, it, it all comes back to storytelling at the end of the day. I've heard people say, don't create PDFs, don't create keynotes. It should be online. You should have a website. Uh, I disagree. I only care that you can tell the story effectively. And I actually think that PDFs are a good way to very easily send your portfolio to anyone and have them reshare it quite easily. I don't like the idea that people have to go to a website and then view, you know, something online, which is also okay. But I think it depends, also depends on what level you're at, but regardless of the level, you should be able to tell a story. So James gave a good example of having a short intro about yourself. If you're telling the story of you, David intro, I'm David something, I'm Dutch. And, yeah. and, and then you're going to tell perhaps 
a lot of people go to then projects. I did this project, did that project, and they'll give details around those projects. You could just easily say, I'm David. Here's something from my first job. Here's something from my second job. And a little story. Here's something from my third job. And by the time you get to the end of it, and keep it short you know, and, and concise, hopefully, but by the time you get to the end of it, I actually have an idea of who you are and what your pre uh, career progression has been. And that's an approach that I, I rarely see, but it's one that I would like to see more often. Yeah. I also don't agree with the fact that a portfolio shouldn't be keynotes because I think a keynote especially is a great way of telling a story because it's linear. So you're forcing yourself to, to have a start and an end and a, and a middle part. One thing that I've considered doing, especially since I've been doing more and more video the last time, is actually record portfolio pieces on video, meaning record the prototype of the work that you've been doing and then narrate it to tell the story because that gives you a chance to show off your personality in in the video for me it's also way easier to talk five minutes on a video than to write uh perfect english because i think that's one question that i, I still want to ask you guys like how much do you maybe unconsciously uh, take it in that a person's english is not uh, native but my, my first thing is i really want to try getting video cases on because I think it, if you do it right, it's a really strong case in taking off all those boxes, process, visuals, personality, soft skills. You could basically do all of them in a video and it doesn't have to be like super professional, but it gets the story across. I love the idea. I love the idea. And it also gets across a little bit of your personality. Uh, and I think people can uh, better connect to the way that you communicate uh, and the way that you present. I think it's a great idea. I've never done it. I've never seen it done, honestly, but I really love it. And James, about the, about the being a non-native English speaker, in your experience at booking, how much of that maybe unconsciously was a factor? I think that's hard to say. You, you look for people that do have good levels of English communication because they, at least in those companies, they're going to need it. Yeah, it's often it's one of those skills that you, you really have to have. But I think for me, more the question is because I'm not a native English speaker, I'm Dutch. I think my English is pretty okay. But there are always people who are native English who in a conversation or in a presentation just find the better words that really exemplify the thing that they're trying to say. Yeah. While uh, I or another non-native English speaker might use more words or come up with some clunky grammar. Um, I'm from Yorkshire in England and we use a shitload of swear words and a shitload of slang and my English is terrible. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, for me, it's not, it, as long as the person can communicate what they're trying to communicate, I don't really care what words they're yeah. using to do that. And I'm also specifically talking about written text, right? Yeah. Written text is, I would say is actually easier in some ways because there's a lot of tools out there that you can use to check that. Like Grammarly and uh, Hemingway, where you can check like the, the sentence structure and whether or not it's a sentence that's difficult to read versus something that's easy to read. You have spell checker, you have translate if you need it. So I'd say written text, it's much easier than I think to communicate that than in person sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I lived in Italy for five years. I worked in Italy and I had to learn Italian and my Italian is still not that good. Um, not even close to as good as your English is, David. But does that make me, yeah, with the hands, does that make me less, it doesn't, it, it definitely hampers my communication a bit, but the way that my mind works does not change. And 
I think anyone who, who, if I see that they're not native English speakers, as long as they can give me an idea of how they think and how they work, mm -hmm. the English will not be a barrier for me. So I would like to close off with a question for both of you, which is, imagine you're the junior designer about to, to start off your career and you want to apply for something, but you've really just started. So you know that you can design, but like your work experience is basically zero to none. Like what do you, what kind of advice would you give such a person, uh, especially around a portfolio and a resume? Because it basically is empty. Tell me who you are. And that's not, the, again, not the earlier statement of, oh, I have a really strong passion for, but for example, we hired a junior who is a really strong visual designer and always has been. And it showed in her studies and it showed in her schooling because she would always spend a lot of time doing visual stuff. And if you looked at the work that she did, most of it was visually orientated and very little UX in there. So to me, her, her statement to me as a recruiter or somebody assessing her would be, look, I've always been really good with visual design. I love visual design and I'm looking to grow in that area and gain a lot more experience. And I can already deliver a, a fair bit of skill with Photoshop or whatever the tool they're using is. So just yeah. tell me about yourself so I get a feeling for who you are. Yeah, it's that point of, of showing you how they think. Can they go beyond just the visuals in that sense? And it's been a long time since I've recruited for or hired a junior, but a lot of people that we've seen come through for like core roles or mid roles or higher that maybe miss the mark sometimes, generally don't show that other level of thinking. So how that work that they could do would translate into something that's meaningful for a business for example, or how would they, if they had the opportunity and the resources to do it, go and user test something and get some results back on their work. And I think also for people at that level, create your own project and work on it. Get a, find a prompt yeah. from somewhere, a design prompt and follow it and see what happens. And then you've got something to talk about, even if it wasn't necessarily a complete product that was launched and everything at the end of it, you can still then talk through your process of how you took that prompt, how you thought about how you were going to design for it, maybe something that would go with that. And then maybe how that would translate into business sense at the end of it, because that's generally what you're going to need in, in the larger product companies. But yeah, just show me how you think. Yeah. I, I would like to close off by saying that this is my personal opinion and I'm biased and I would love uh, especially in these times for companies to change the way they look at juniors, especially for people that, that want to get into the realm of design, but are just on the verge of getting there. So they don't have any skills. I would love to, to look at people and look at their ambition and look at their potential ability. So that for me, that also means that if a person doesn't have any design experience at all, but he has experience in retail or in marketing or in copywriting and he, mm -hmm. and in his portfolio, it really shows that he's, He's up there willing to do the work. I would hire such a person because I don't think design is, of course, it's talent, but it's also hard work and perseverance. I'm a self-taught designer. I started off on my own, learning myself things. So if, mm -hmm. if you give those people the ability to grow on the job, it's just assessing whether they're capable and whether their ambition is right. And then the rest will follow itself. Because I believe more in people skills than in actual uh, craft. Yeah, for, for me, it's the one thing that will stand out for people at, at all levels, even including senior and above, is a willingness to learn still, yeah. and, and what that is. So there was a while back for myself personally where I hadn't done too much in relation to 
app design, mobile app design. But I saw that's where things were moving. More and more people were designing for mobile. I wanted to learn that. So I just built an app. I designed an app and I learned how yeah. to put an app together and then how to submit that to the, to the app stores. It wasn't anything super special. It was like, it was a quiz app that maybe took in some questions and you could work your way through it and people could play it as a bit of a game. But just going through that process taught me so much about app design and how I would have to hand those designs off to developers, for example, in that situation. So they're the types of things that I look for in other candidates that would really stand out to me. It's, yeah. do you have that willingness to learn? What have you done that could maybe showcase that? And that's the only time I think on the junior question where some of these online courses and things might help someone out. But then I would be looking for how they've translated that into a portfolio type thing rather than just a list of, I went yeah. to this course. And so I, just, I just want to add um, that there's also a responsibility for juniors to make sure that they apply at the right places as well. So if, you're, if you have a certain ambition, certain skill set or, or a developing skill set, try and apply at places that will actually help you in that regard. So don't just apply for any job anywhere because you need a job and you want to get in the industry. And I know that's hard to do, especially when you're looking, but you will land somewhere eventually. If, if it's in your heart too, you will find it. But I think in closing, one of, the, one, of, one of the real standout points from this particular conversation for me is how agreeable it's been. I still don't get why people haven't, worked out how to do this shit because we've been talking we had a recruiter on as well and we all pretty much agree with everything the other ones say mm -hmm. there is a way to do it there is a formula that you can follow to do it well so just do it have a simple resume get to the point and have a certain way of interviewing you'll land where you're meant to land yeah and i think the closing off uh, totally agree with what you said and i think share your resume and your portfolio with your friends especially if they're in the design industry ask them what they think, ask for feedback, help them improve your portfolio before you send it off because yeah. you don't want a recruiter seeing your mistakes that you over, overlooked. Yeah, and, it. and it's that's how you would design as part of your design process anyway. Exactly. Generally be asking those questions to other people. So yeah, do, definitely do that. Awesome. Guys, and Jennifer, who's already left. Thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about portfolios, resumes, and interviews. We added that last thing along the way. So that concludes part one of um, today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion I had with James and Toma and Jen. And now we uh, continue with my interview or talk or discussion with Andre Herasmchuk. Enjoy. When you had your own studio back in the US, what was your hiring process like? Oof. The studio was a, a little bit unique than it was compared to hiring at either Adobe or Yahoo or even Twitter. The, the main thing I did is I hired people that I knew and I, for a, this is gonna be different. So for a studio, I tend to hire based on leading, needing to manage the least. So what I mean by that is I tended to look for designers who I knew their skill set was a specific type and who would fit a project in a specific uh, way. So in that regard, it was more about, did they have time and uh, did they want to do the project and price wise than it was about where they write for the job. You do a little bit of the, is it right for the job, but you spend a lot of time getting to know designers and getting to know them and you can try to hire more specifically. That has its pros and cons. The pros are, you don't have to manage as much. The cons are, uh, is yeah. that it's hard to reuse people for projects. So you're constantly looking for people to help with certain different things. 
for the designers that were in-house, they were people that I knew really well and who were willing to forego a corporate job and take a shot at the, at the studio. So one of those people, two of them, went on to join me at Twitter, too, after we relocated the studio to Boston. So yeah, that's, that's a slightly yeah. different way of doing it, I think. And how was that different than at, uh, at Twitter and Yahoo? Yeah, so, this, so when, my, when my daughter uh, graduated from uh, CCA, she's done some podcasts on this topic, too, and I think they're interesting as well. The unfortunate reality is I can tell you what happened to Twitter, for example, because Twitter was going through a very large growth phase at the time. We were trying to hire, oof, I think like 10 to 15 designers in the span of three to six months, which is a lot, yeah. quite frankly. I'd sit in a room with, with a few other folks and a recruiter, and they would pop up somebody's website or portfolio on the screen. And in the course of an hour, we had to go through some 30 to 50 people so the unfortunate reality oh. was is that if the very first five to 10 seconds didn't catch our eye, it was gone. Gee, I know I hate to admit that, but that was the reality. So as I always tell people with portfolios at the big companies, you can't afford to be cute. You can't afford to like spend any time trying to build a story. You build the story after you catch their attention. So you got to think of the portfolio a little bit like a movie poster. The first bit of it has to catch somebody's attention. Then you can give them the preview or the story or whatever background, but you got to have to catch their attention, not because you are not worth it, not because your work's not worth it, but because there are so many people looking for jobs, you got to stand out really fast. After that, we would go into somebody's portfolio. And then again, they would have 10, 15, 20 projects they wanted to look at. And so we looked at whichever one caught our eye. And if that, in that one, we didn't see something that explained either a good process, a good result, how they thought, what kind of aesthetic they like to do, what kind of thought process they went into features, any number of things, again, gone. Yeah. It was pretty brutal. It's that brutal. There's not much I can say about that other than the first, you got three hits up hits to go for. And the first one's got to be catch your attention. The second one's got to be, you're not your best case, not your, not your, uh, building into it. <laughs> Does that also mean that portfolio-wise, you should go with quality over quantity? Because like if oh, you yeah. put in 20 cases. Well, so you put, the you put the quantity behind the scenes. You really have to think more like a marketing person with your portfolio. You got to have the headline. You got to have the, the reason, the catch, the hook. From there, you, yeah. you've got to give somebody like one, two, or three options. If you give them one, that's fine. As long as that one is really good. But you got to give them something there. You don't give them like 20 options and then let them pick. But you give them... Just like if you remember Apple's like website, it was always like hero image and then three other cases and then everything else was in a menu. It's yeah. a little bit like that. You want to give them the quantity, but you have to get their attention and you have to make your case very quickly before you then flesh it all out. That makes sense. Do you think it's still the case? Is it still relevant as of today? Yeah. Twitter, Yahoo, Facebook, and Google. I just think any big corporate job is like that. Even a little bit like if you're contracting or freelancing, I tend to believe that. Now, I haven't done hiring like this since I used to hire teams quite a bit from basically yeah. 2000 until about 2015. So the last five years, I haven't done any hiring or built up teams, but for those 15 years, that was the process. And basically getting into the portfolio, you have to assume your audience is smart. First off, if you assume that your hiring person is not going to get things, then you're not going to stand out. So don't sit there and explain, like, we did this kind of wireframing, or we did this exercise with these post-it notes, blah, blah, blah. You have to say, 
real quickly what processes you use. You don't need to get into the details of that process. You can do that after the fact, but you need to get into what you were trying to solve, how you solved it, why you think you did a good job with it, why it worked, what didn't work, any of those number of things really quickly. Don't, you just don't beat around the bush like that. You have to assume that me, the guy hiring you, knows what you're talking about. So don't explain to me the process per se, show me how the process worked. <laughs> yeah, make the impact from and center. Yeah. I think. What do you, when you're building say. portfolios, what do you think you're, you're doing when you're actually? Uh... I've been reading a lot about this. So before I joined, before I joined Booking, mm -hmm. my process would be, I would always try to uh, be there when they look at the portfolio, mm -hmm. because then I would be able to uh, walk them through the process and show them this and that. Yeah. Uh, because I don't, because it's always hard, especially me being uh, non-native, it's always hard that people might read something different than what your intentions were. So, I, so that's one thing. The other thing is my previous portfolio, and I've changed it a little bit, was this is my process. This is how I normally like to work. And then I didn't have one portfolio case, but I would explain it in general. And then with every step in the process, I would have examples of different portfolio cases. Did that work for you? I think so. I'm not sure if the other one would have worked better, like the having one or two or three cases that would be explained in detail. But for me, it was easier because myself, I think you also, as a designer, have to stay close to your own process. So I always like to follow a process because it helps me structure things because other, otherwise things become chaotic. So that's why for me, it's easy. This is my process. And roughly, this is always how I like to work. So I think that's... An so there's never... Yeah, I think that's an important point. You also have to be confident in your portfolio and you have to do the thing that you know, because it's also amazing how uh, easy it is to spot somebody who's trying to trying too hard, who's trying to use the right industry jargon or whatever, instead of just being really comfortable with what they, they did. I think a lot of people fall into that trap. They fall into this, this is what people want to hear. This is what... I should be saying, this is what the experts say the process is. And there is definitely some of that, but you have to be authentic. And yeah. it is easy to be inauthentic in a portfolio. And I think a lot of um, people don't realize it's quite easy to spot that. And one of the things also we, we discussed is, especially in your resume, where you basically are summing up you know, your projects, your achievements, your work history. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to come over as cocky. And, and since that's the first impression you'll give to a recruiter or a, a someone who's hiring you, it's best to stay as neutral as possible in your resume, because otherwise people might think, oh, this is a one cocky motherfucker. <laughs> What's funny, it's, you don't want to be cocky. I agree with that. I'm not sure about neutral though. Neutral, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think um, neutral may be too soft sometimes. It's definitely, you can play it safe by being neutral, but you should, you shouldn't be afraid to talk up or be proud of, if you will, the things that you think worked or the things that you think you brought to the table. Again, if you're being authentic about it, I think then it's better that way. If you're being honest about it, it's better that way. So it's okay to, it's okay to say what happened if what happened was that you, you felt like you knocked it out of the park. But yeah, to your point, yeah. if you're cocky about it, if you're just completely uh, bragging, yeah, that's easy to spot. Nobody needs that on their team. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I give about portfolios is you have to, um, again, treat the, your audience like they know what you're talking about because 
They do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've probably been in your spot. There are rare cases when that's not the that doesn't happen, but it's very rare. I think the best thing you can do though is to realize that uh, there's a team that you're trying to join and they're all sitting in a room or they're all sitting in different parts of the of an office and whatnot. And there's an empty chair somewhere. And they're trying to fill that empty chair. And if you want to sit in that empty chair, you have to also realize that you want to work with them and they want to work with you. So your portfolio also has to your portfolio also has to be very personable. So to your point, don't be cocky, but be honest, be authentic, and be personable. You know, do you want to work with these people? Do they want to work with you? At the end of the day, that's what this is about. Jobs are teams of people, and you want this job. You gotta make the case that not only should you sit in that chair, you want to sit in that chair. And when you sit in that chair, they're going to like having you around. <laughs> so there's yeah. all that wrapped up into portfolio. I think portfolios get very much about the work. They get very much about, oh, I did this, or this was the thing that I, I used here. And they forget that, hey, we're all human beings here. You got to also want to sit with these people and, and hang out with them. For me, like looking at a lot of portfolios, a lot of them especially are a lot of pretty pictures. I think that could work for you, especially mm -hmm. if you're like a UI designer and you want to land a job drawing great interfaces, fine. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's always hard because if you show the end product, I know, and I think a lot of people know, especially people that are looking at it, this is the result of, of a process, right? And it's a result of decisions. It's a result of stakeholders trying to influence it. This is a result of so many other things than just you and your opinion on how this should work and look. And if I'm not seeing how those influence, how those influences made this end result look different than you thought it to be, I think it's not telling the right story. Right. Yeah. To that point, you might as well look for a freelance job. If all you're going to do is draw pretty pictures and contribute in that fashion. Yeah. yeah. Again. Yeah. You got to be part of the team, you want to help shape and mold the thing. And you got to bring your personality to it. You got to bring your intuition to it. You got to bring your, uh, you know, passion to it, the whole thing. And we were talking about juniors, a more junior portfolio versus a more senior portfolio, or even at a director level or VP level. First, as a junior, probably since your portfolio cases are zero to none, especially if you're just joining like the industry, how would you try to communicate who you are, what you can do, what your process is like, what you're capable of, if you don't have an actual portfolio case that you can show up? Yeah, I think that this one is actually... Uh pretty easy to a large degree, I think. So if you're a junior level designer, or if you're just getting into the business, my one piece of advice to them is to not listen to some of the elders in this business when they tell you that it's always about the user. What I mean by that is that in, in this business, we get to people with user-centered design, the user is the center of everything, the user this, the user that, the customer this, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, we forget that you know, our job is to solve the problem for these people, not to have these people solve the problem and then us just implement what they think is the solution. Yeah. We can do that, but I've never seen that make great products. I've seen that make okay to mediocre products. So to that end, you as a designer have a lot to contribute to the project. You're supposed to. Your brain, your craft, your skill, your passion. Oh, that's my dog. <laughs> your brain, your skill, your passion. All of these things are, are being brought to the table. So because of that, you should value your own opinion as a data point at minimum, and you should attempt to solve the problem. So as a junior level person, go do a project on your own, redesign something, build something, take a shot at it. 
and solve it the way you think it should be solved, even though you don't have all the data, even though you don't have all the context, even though any number of reasons should stop you from doing this for real because you don't have access to that, you still have the ability to show what you think can be done. And go make it. Just go make it, go draw it, go build it, go do whatever you want to, and put yourself out there. Now, you're going to make mistakes when you do that. People are going to tell you you don't have all the data, which you should say, sure, I don't. I was just working with what I had. But at the same time, you will learn the most valuable lesson out of the gate, which is that you can do this and you can build it and you don't need some project or somebody else to give it to you to make it happen. So yeah, literally pick a project, go do something, put it on your portfolio, acknowledge that it's, it's just a, it's just a, a side thing. You don't have much there. But if you do that and you do that honestly and authentically, I, I guarantee you it will come through. And the other thing you need to do is you need to be hungry or you need to show that you really want to learn and that'll come through too. And you will get a job and you will actually wind up probably getting a, a job that is going to give you access to all the things you need access to. Yeah. I know that a lot of people, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it's mostly junior people, but a lot of people go at a, at a big famous project, mm -hmm. probably that this also happened at Twitter and then do, oh, I redesigned Twitter or I redesigned booking.com. I redesigned Airbnb mm -hmm. to your point. If you're a junior and you're doing this with your knowledge and not the knowledge that a company has, because I, I knew at booking with someone would do this internally, designers would always say, oh, there's another guy who put his uh, booking redesign on Behance and uh, he's so wrong because he's doing, he, he's coming up with all these assumptions that are not true and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Do you, like, if you would hire someone, would you consider this a good thing then to your point or? Yeah, I'm not going to get too much in detail about places that I've worked. I hate that when designers do that. I think the, if you sit there and, and be all uh, hoity-toity or whatever about people attempting these things, you're part of the problem, in my opinion. If the person doing the, the redesign or whatever made an honest attempt, then you should be happy to, to check it out and see what they thought. If that person doing the redesign is bragging and being cocky about it, then just ignore them. That's fine. But I think it's great when people try to attempt to do that. They have enough naivete to think that they can, which is exactly what you need to get something done. If you look at any project out there, any major project that we all use today, tools, services, whatever, if you told somebody that, yeah, you're gonna build a real-time system that's using messaging that hits the, the feeds and dis distributes messages to billions of people uh, on the planet within a matter of milliseconds, they would've told you you're crazy. Yeah. Um, that's Twitter. If you told somebody that, hey, you want to build a, a tool that's as complicated uh, as a lot of parts of Photoshop and Illustrator, but you're going to do it in GL, you're going to do it in a web browser. And by the way, it's going to be, be usable on, on any device that has GL, which is like an iPad. People have told you you're crazy. And then you say, we're also going to throw in yeah. real-time collaboration. Well, that's Figma. The, the two founders there, I remember them, had enough naivete that they thought it was possible and they went for it. So people who do the read the big redesigns, like, oh, I'm going to redesign Twitter or I'm going to redesign uh, this or that, I think it's great. I think they should do more of it. And I think people in our business who naysay and hate on them need to shut the hell up for a little bit and encourage the behavior, not discourage the behavior. It's really sad to see internal teams get that, that high and mighty, in my opinion. It just bums me out. Having said that, if you are going to go out there and redesign Twitter and blah, whatever, don't brag. Don't think... Just... Solve what you think is, is a problem for you. 
that is something you can definitely do. Don't try to solve the problem for the world without any context. Definitely solve a pain point you have. That's a good start. There's no reason why not to do that. And just be authentic about it. Don't think that you're changing the world. If you want to change the world, go make your own company and, and build your own things. I'm wondering, like, at a director level portfolio, that must be completely different. <laughs> like, how does that work? When you find the answer to that, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my, oh, that's a very good question. I don't know how it works for everybody else. I've done mine. And the way mine were done were very little of the portfolio itself and more of the how you answer questions that granted my situation is unique in that I, I helped get uh, part of the design team at Adobe up and going. I have my own studio. I was a director at, at Yahoo and then at Twitter. So my questioning is different or how I get questioned and interviewed is different. I don't have a good answer to that. I really don't. I have a lot of opinions about it, but yeah. Have you been in hiring processes of, let's say, senior level, around senior level oh, yeah. uh, hirings? At, oh, yeah? yes. Yeah, I definitely have. I was part of the process that vetted getting, for example, Mike Davidson hired as the VP of design for Twitter because we were looking for the VP because I was a director level and uh, wanted to find somebody who uh, could actually be a VP level. What are the kind of questions then that you, that you ask um, differently than you would at a junior or senior level? I think a lot of it for me is I, I generally go down two paths. One is I go down what I believe is the honest assessment of the issues facing the designers and the product part of the company. And I do that mostly because I want the person coming in to have a real good bearing, at least one data point from my point of view, but a really good bearing on what is actually going on, not what people are telling them is going on or what the outside perception of what's going on. So that's the first thing I do is I actually don't really interview. I just lay it on them. <laughs> yeah. Here's all the crap that you're going to have to deal with and gauge the reaction. Are they up for it? Do they show concern? Are they quiet about it? If they're quiet about it, that sometimes is a you know concern for me because then I realize that I can't tell what they're thinking and that might not be a good thing. And then the second one is I largely just, I talked to them about how they want to deal with managing expectations and the people around them. I want to hear how they've solved dealing with executives or their counterparts in things like engineering or marketing or sales. I want to get a sense of who they are as a person and how they're going to come in and whatnot. When you're dealing with people at that level, the, they're more managing and they're more helping to set roadmaps and set direction. And so in that regard, the work itself is um, not on them, although what their teams did is, is a large reflection. What you really want to get a sense of is how they think that they're going to make the designers and the product uh, team be able to do uh, great work. Thanks for joining us this week on the Designers FM show. Make sure to visit our website, designers.fm, where we put links to all the shows on all the different platforms so you never have to miss one. And uh, you can also subscribe to updates so you don't miss a show. Um, while you're at it, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or just tell a friend about us. We'd be extremely thankful. That's all for now. I'm your host, David, and this class is dismissed. <laughs>